This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, uh, Aaron Weinacht here uh, with the New Books Network. This is the Russian and Eurasian Studies section of that project. And today we're talking to uh, Tim Hart, uh, who is a professor of Russian out at Bryn Mawr, right? That is correct. And who is currently serving as a provost there. So thanks for being uh, a guest today, Tim. My pleasure. So first off, could you tell everybody, uh, how'd you get into Russian history, kind of the background on how you ended up arriving at writing a book about the, uh, the images of uh, uh, sport in uh, Russian and Soviet art? Okay, happy to, uh, happy to explain how I, I got to this place and to this book. Uh, I, I grew up outside of Boston in my public high school right outside of Boston, Concord Carlisle High School, um, had just, it was the tail end of the, the Cold War um, when I was in high school and we had a Russian program. So uh, an interest, the teacher was actually not the most responsible of teachers, but he got us uh, really interested in Russian language. Um, and so having taken, uh, uh, I think three years of Russian in, in high school, I went, went on in, in college to it, did it, uh, uh, undergrad at Harvard and um, at Harvard uh, ended up majoring in uh, Slavic, and I think it was Soviet and East European studies was what it was called at the time. And um, I took the language. I don't know if I was the most serious student, but my senior year in, in, in college wrote a thesis on um, on the literature of Mikhail Bulgakov and the fantastic in Bulgakov and uh, really enjoyed that process of, of writing a senior thesis. Uh, lucked out with my thesis advisor, William Mills Todd III, who's an emeritus now at Harvard and really sort of lucked out with our connections there. So I felt that was um, almost dumb luck on my part. And just really, it was the first time in college that I really enjoyed my studies wholeheartedly and l- love doing that. So um, sort of out of that, went to Russia, came back, went to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, 
for my master's was thinking about a PhD program there. While I was at at um, at Madison, took a graduate seminar from Claire Kavanaugh on the the poetry of Osip Mandelstam, where there were these four four little poems that I noticed that he had about sports, and that piqued my curiosity. I wrote an article about it. And that was the beginning of my interest in the sports, the sports theme of my book. Um, but then I transferred back to Harvard um, and then really worked with, um, did most of my work, not with William Mills Todd, who was a, a, a second uh, reader on my dissertation, but really John Malmstead, who was um, a Russian avant-garde expert um, and a cultural historian of sorts. So out of that sort of focus on cultural history, um, really sort of that piqued my curiosity. Uh, and John Malmstead had a small little article as well about um, wrestling in Russian avant-garde art. They also caught my attention. So was interested in that. I also should note that I grew up uh, an avid athlete. I've always been a, a long distance runner. So I have that in my background and somewhat of a sports fan. Um, so had that interest. Um, and I competed uh, intercollegiately in college as well as a runner. Um, so had that and then wrote my dissertation, not really on sports. I had thought about writing my dissertation on sports, but wanted to be a little broader um, and focused on the theme of speed um, and dynamism in Ru the Russian avant-garde art. Um, and sports certainly happens to be a component of that dynamism that, uh, that emerged at the beginning of the 20th century in Russian avant-garde art. So wrote my dissertation. Um, out, of, out of my dissertation came my first book, uh, Fast Forward, and the aesthetics and ideology of, of speed in Russian avant-garde art. Um, and that, and then as a second book and a, something more, I would say, this closer to my heart uh, was the, the sports theme. And really sort of after, after the publication of my first book, that's what I set down to do is to really work on um, cultural history of sports in Russia and that intersection of sort of intersection of sports, Russian and Soviet, early Soviet history and, and art, be it, be it cinema, be it poetry, be it, uh, painting, be it, be it photography. So really loved that all being able to work in a, no, a number of uh, mediums was, was also appealing to me. Um, as someone who gradually through through graduate school became more and more engrossed by uh, by cinema so and this has allowed uh, sort of allowed me to indulge all my interests in one <laughs> swoop yeah uh, it's nice to be able to write your own ticket that way <laughs> yeah it was yeah especially and yeah it was up to me and uh yeah and it was under an underappreciated theme i would say hit there, are, there have been histories of athletics and history of, of, um, of sports in in the Soviet Union, but not in the not a really comprehensive look at the way that it inter intersected with the arts and the way that the, so many artists embraced it. Part of the issue being that 
some some folks in the academy have thumbed their nose at, at sports or seen it as a as a, um, a not so serious topic. I'm just going to exit this, uh, um, and so that I think um, allowed a space for my book where I think there weren't as many uh, maybe a sort of a, not a snobbish disregard for sports, but somehow seen it as a, as a crass pastime that, uh, um, and the other thing I noted that many scholars weren't taking sports as sport and as play, but as seeing it as a metaphor for something else. And that if an art, if an artist was incorporating some aspect of sports into their work, is often the the immediate reaction was to see it as a metaphor for something and instead of really thinking about the way that sports was this cultural phenomenon at the turn into the 20th century and really grabbed western society um, in a profound way and and in many ways accompanied or complemented a lot of the changes in society at that time. And, um, and it's only, only natural that a lot of, a lot of artists would be interested in that, in that new phenomenon of sports. And that's always what has interested me about it. So since you brought up the kind of broader Western context, I was thinking it might be good here at the beginning if you could kind of backdrop the overall context in which Russian sports develops there in the late, you know, 19th, early 20th century. Uh, I think that'd be useful to do. Sure. Um, certainly um, a lot of the Western sports um, movement arose not in Russia, but in, in, in England with soccer, um, even before that, more sort of upper crust sports that gave way to more uh, common sports such as, such as soccer or football and um, rugby a bit. To the, and, and, but there was um, a sense in coming out in, in the 19th century that that's all of a sudden it was not just an aristocratic pastime and aristocratic play, but something that would be uh, accessible to, to everyone in society. In, in part, there were ways that it was used by the wealthy to uh, entertain or distract the, the workers and to keep them happy is to have them engage in sports. So that would, that was certainly part of it, but in the middle of the 19th century sports, uh, sports starts to spread. I mean, you can see this in, in the literature as well, but, um, but I think, um, out of, out of England comes a, an excitement for competitive competitive sports that harken back certainly to the ancient Greek times when when the when the uh, ancient Olympics occurred, uh, but it was so it was a revival of that. You move into the move into the later part of the 19th century when um, sports are beginning to become more and more popular, and then there is the revival of the Olympic Games. So that's a crucial crucial point is 1896 uh and and 
the uh, the first modern Olympic Games, which a few few nations take part in. At the same time, you also have in America, uh, the U.S. You have a lot of interest in in sports as well, um, with with um, baseball and football taking hold at that time. So a lot of these new sports are are, are arising as, as as popular pastimes, um, and then. Coming into the new century, you, as I said, you have the Olympic Games and then Russia wanting to be involved in that international movement that was meant in, in many ways to seen as a way of improving the na- nations and a way for nations to, to show their, their, their metal, show their, uh, their worth show how what great nations they are and russia certainly and the czars wanted to uh in russia wanted to take uh take part in that phenomenon gradually did even though there was some resistance in russia where russian sports emerges though is and that's what one of the chapters in my book is on is is circus wrestling and that's uh and that for me was a a fun aspect to um um, to research was all the this phenomenon of 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 circus wrestling that so many artists noted at the begin at the end of the end of the nineteenth century into really the early the first decade of the twentieth century that the it was the it was just hugely popular um, circus wrestling Barzi in in particularly in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but it would had a sort of rural veneer where these strongmen would come from the countryside and then and wrestle um, wrestle in the circuses, and then that um, metastasized, I guess you could say, to uh, um, international international wrestling. Tournaments that occurred at the circuses, the, the Chinazeli Circus in Petersburg, um, a bunch of circuses in Moscow, and gradually it 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 took oh, took hold as as this popular sport. That dies down by the start of World War One. There's really less of an interest, popular interest in 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 wrestling, but other sports sort of take over with soccer being a pro, more proletarian sport, um, and even even some tennis, but um, just a gradual into into the into the Soviet era, just a continuation of the way that it was seen as a reflection of the strength. Sports was a way for uh, countries to demonstrate their 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 health, I guess you could say, and this this emphasis on health. So that would be maybe some some of the historical background. Right. Uh, I was thinking you you started to get onto this here just a second ago. That so you got this this you know hugely productive artistic period. You know, say uh, you know kind of eighteen nineties through the really through the until stalin yeah late 20s late late 20s let's say uh like kind of at that and then lots of those artists are very much i mean they're they're political thinkers and they're they're involved in in 
uh, revolutionary movement in lots of ways. So like what, what aesthetic significance are they investing sports with in that context? Like what, you know, what kinds of themes that come out in sports or what kind of, you know, artistic, uh, you know, aesthetic are they seeing there as a real possibility? As a, yeah. Huh. Um, that's a good, interesting question. Um, I'm not sure I asked it very well, but the, uh, uh, the I mean, maybe referencing my first book, certainly the dynamism of it and that, that the, there was a sheer beauty that was, was perceived in sports that to this day is perceived that the emphasis on the body certainly and that the the body could do beautiful beautiful things in the sports arena that there was this going going beyond the everyday to show show audiences and they these were popular events so if if an artist is seeking popularity uh it is an interesting way to um to attract audiences but i think just to uh, convey some of that beauty that is maybe more familiar to us today and more common but was more of a a new phenomenon at the beginning of the 20th century. And certainly you have with wrestling, the side, the, the sheer size of these hulking strongmen, um, I think caught the attention of, of artists, but certainly, um, athletes moving fast, athletes throwing, throwing things, um, jumping, um, that, that itself had a, had an intrinsic beauty to it. Um, in my book, I also talk about the, the Greek concepts of aret and agon and that, that sense of excellence and then competition that maybe is not an, those aren't aesthetic, but that artists certainly saw the, the model of athletes striving for excellence as maybe a, a model for their own for their own work as they sort of st- strove for excellence and that, that as as seen seen athletes almost as models for what they're doing you know, i got uh, uh when i got home after i finished your book i was t- telling my wife about it and we got in a big argument about whether or not sports can be art <laughs> and yeah oh yeah it's <laughs> actually you addressed that question of bit uh, <laughs> as I recall you assiduously avoided taking a position on it which is probably wise but uh, yeah. uh, I don't know so I was thinking about that that difference in those two Greek terms you mentioned is that you know it seems like once you get into the competition side of the equation maybe it's a little hard to argue harder to argue that sports are art but purely I don't know say like a strong man who's really not competing against anybody but himself in the same way that like if you're a musician you're just trying yes. to play better right that, that, that seems to me to certainly qualify as art is that I don't know would you agree with that or um 
that it would that a, that a strong man would qualify as art. Uh, yeah. See, yeah, it's the the the, and I address this in my book. But the conscious, you know, the that a, a an artist is trying to pro- consciously produce art, right? A strong man wrestling in a wrestling ring or a, a tennis player, it's it it's debatable whether that is a conscious act of creativity. Yeah. Yeah. That, and it's the, this issue of that because of the agona, because of the competition, they want to, you want to win. Right. And that's, that's the goal. It's not to impress people with the artistry per se. But, but then, you know, on the flip side, you know, when I quote a bunch of these folks, you know, sort of David Foster Wallace, you know, talking about Roger Federer playing t- tennis and how just he's an artist out there and it, there's yeah. a beauty to it. And, you know, in certain ways, he's Roger Federer when he was playing was trying to hit a backhand in a, in a way that. Again, is it is it so that he could win? Probably, yeah. But there's also a smooth elegance to it that that at least hovers around art. Yeah. Yeah, I just yeah. You know, of course, it's one of those questions that I mean, it's it doesn't really have an answer, you know, in the long yeah. run, right? But it just seemed to me like your uh, your book kind of unexpectedly at least to my mind, it was unexpected. Brett brought that up, and it wasn't something I'd really thought about all that much. And so maybe folks yeah. listening would be interested in thinking about that some more through the lens of what you're you're uh, you're writing about here. I, yeah. It occurs to me that uh, since we've had a couple of Greek terms, I think there's a Russian term we ought to talk about a little bit, uh, life creation, because I think that kind of tags on to what you were talking about uh, a little bit. Could you yes. talk a little bit about that whole idea and how it it's placed in the overall scheme of Russian art here yeah I mean uh, and the term in Russian uh, and really create using your own life uh, as a form of creativity um, and that's somewhat dangerous and it become became somewhat dangerous in the way that artists stylized their lives to to almost to, to construe their lives as a, as a work of art and um, and you know it's certainly tied in with decadent the decadence uh, mo- decadence movement in in Europe um, at the end of the 19th century but um, with sports it becomes all the more, the visible or that that in that these artists were not only seeing their lives as works of art but emulating the athletes that they saw so the act the creative act becomes them sh- becoming or at least presenting themselves on a canvas 
or in a book or on a film as as an athlete and and infusing their their art with that athleticism where and almost in a you could argue in a certain way that the um that was a way of almost legitimizing the life creation, the Zhiznitvorchistva, because if it's just a decadent thing that that artists sort of take part in, um, it it's it could you know just pre- be perceived as pretension. But if they're you know all so many of these artists, and yeah, yeah I could just go through a bunch of them, saw themselves as you know, or presented themselves as as athletes wanted to to um, wanted to become athletes and wanted to change their own self in a way that was almost revolutionary, um, and that's how it ties in so well with the Russian avant-garde that they wanted to, their art to transform life. And if you're going to transform your life, uh, a good way to do it is through athletics instead of being the um, sort of weak, uh, weak or or unhealthy um, artist. They would become these strong, uh, strong, uh, healthy, uh, vigorous, um, enthusiastic athletes that might. Uh, in that way and it sort of almost with that strength transforming society and that that strength would give it to them i think you should talk about a few names uh i'm guessing sure so uh yeah so give us a few examples um all right uh you know i you know i one of the chapters i talk about um uh some poetry in there. So we have Alexander Bloch and Bloch is, you know, known for his symbolist poetry that is very uh, uh, mystical of, of, of sorts. And then in the, in the teens, he starts uh, going to wrestling tournaments and starting, starts lifting weights. Um, and he, he himself was in other ways on, in somewhat unhealthy ways, uh, practicing life creation, uh, with his symbolist colleague Andre Billy and uh, and some of the things they envisioned for themselves, but in this in this instance, what's that? Love triangles don't tend to turn out correct. Well. <laughs> with uh, Minde- Lubov Mendeleeva, yeah, and the daughter of the uh, father of the uh, uh, periodic table, Bloch's uh, Bloch's first Bloch's uh, wife, but um, in a in sort of life creation. Uh, thought of her as some mystical, mystical woman. And I don't think he ever even slept with her or didn't, for many years, didn't sleep with her and then created this uh, um, um, sort of Harlequin uh, Pierrot uh, um, Comedia, Comedia dell'arte love triangle that uh, was very unsavory and probably ruined, ruined her life. Uh, but I, yeah, that that uh, not sports related, but in, uh, interesting facet it, of cultural yeah. history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but then he starts lifting weights, 
and and bicycling and doing all these these vigorous things and and seeing that as a transformative thing in his life. Um, so um, you you ha- you see that um, uh, and 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 sort of out of that era, you know, out of that period comes a certain different different art art for him. Um, you have. Uh, Ilya Mashkov and um, um, painting a portrait of of him and his colleague Konchalovsky as uh, two painters from a very sort of decadent uh, group of painters as bodybuilders, and all of a sudden they're they're presenting presenting themselves as hulking hulking strongmen, and it wasn't merely a, a joke on a, in a um, um, in a painting, but actual sort of strength work that they did um, in their lives. So it was not just bravado or just a wink and a joke, but something that they took seriously. I think over Mashkov for Konchalovsky's uh, um, uh, studio was that only the strong should uh, be working here in this in this studio. So um, you have that. You have the poet Vladimir Mayakovsky, who also s- sort of envisioned himself at, at certain points as as a, a, a man of the future, a man of strength. Um, you have Lentulov is another uh, uh, painter. Um, you you know, and then it you know it it. it slightly dissipates after the revolution but so many of these artists are you know doing sports or uh, practicing sports or you know we you get to all Russian avant or Soviet avant-garde cinema and the camera you know the the quintessential Soviet avant-garde uh, film man with the movie camera and the man with the the actual man with the movie camera in the film is so athletic and participating in in um in uh, you know sunny you know swimming on the beach and just the way that he is filming is seen as an athletic thing so um they're all trying to incorporate the athletics into their lives and into their art at the same time. And then even even someone like Vladimir Nabokov, who grew up in the teens in, in St. Petersburg, um, it's not as though it's exactly life creation, but he definitely saw himself as an athlete and the athletics and that play uh, becomes a, a prominent part of his art. When I when I started reading that section of your book, I instantly thought of the character uh, Rachmerov from uh, um, yeah. What is to Chernyshevsky's What Is to Be Done in eighteen sixty three. Yes, uh, is that uh, um, you, you? Is there some direct kind of literary inspiration there? That novel having been so influential. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um... I think a lot of the people coming uh, certainly saw that novel and Rachmetov, and specifically the character of Rachmetov. He eats, uh, he lifts logs and eats beef, and uh, uh, really wants to, you know, that revolutionary transformation. You know, it's not as though um, it's not as though all the um, all of the writers 
I have in mind or write about um, revered Chernyshevsky, but I think he was it, that model was seen as something important at the t at, you know at as Russian society moved towards uh, towards the turn of the turn of the century and towards the revolutionary. Uh, these revolutionary moments of 1905 and 1917 that um, I, I certainly think that what is to be done played a large role in how art, art functioned and was seen as perhaps precipitating some of the, some of the revolution. And that's what's so, that's what I find so interesting about Russian, Russian artists at that, this time that there was this real messianic belief that they could transform transform the world through their art or at least the country and, and you know uh, facilitate revolution and that by advocating for revolution through art that would that would transform society so and then the way that sports fits into that I think in a in a somewhat maybe indirect but almost direct way of them saying okay we can we can change ourselves. We can, we can, uh, we're making ourselves strong, strong revolutionaries that is, so if we can do it to ourselves and we can promote it in our, in our art, that will have, that will be an indication that art can transform society, which is what they all believed would happen in some ways. There were some false, false hopes, I suppose, but, uh, um, but certainly uh, uh, this messianic character, and I think fit, sports really did have a role to play with that. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, even if you think back to the whole, uh, like the, the era of the, the radicals of the 1860s, yeah. their, their overall focus is much more inward rather <laughs> than, than um uh, you know, they're not big, you know, they're, they're not thinkers like Hertzson, right? They're thinking about like, what kind of person should I be? You know, it sounds very much like what you're talking about here later on. Yeah. Yeah. And even Belinsky, Belinsky has a little, has a few comments about uh, gymnastics and so forth. So they're, th they're, they're all thinking about it. And, uh, and then it just sort of, it's the momentum of it certainly grows for uh, out of out of Chernyshevsky, but uh, as you know, as somewhat outdated a novel it is, but it's sort of an interesting an interesting novel in itself. But uh, it's yeah, not, not not prosaically speaking, the yeah. 
I hope I never read it again, but, but <laughs> in terms yes. of its influence, yeah. The, and that's, just, yeah. It's another tie-in with Nabokov as well, because uh, Chernyshevsky wrote uh, What is to be Done, and then Nabokov, um, in his great, la his last Russian novel, The Gift, has a whole chapter, which is a biography of Chernyshevsky, um, a sort of a stylized biography that his protagonist writes that is one of the chapters in The Gift. Um, so... You know, it certainly was that which indicates the pro, you know, how prominent a, a cultural figure Chernyshevsky had become. Mm. Uh, controversial, but uh, but important. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think maybe maybe now would be a good time to kind of lay out what changes in in artistic depictions of sport from you know, let's say before the mid twenties, this kind of very imaginative, uh, <laughs> creative era in the early Soviet era to, to what, what changes in depiction of art from that, uh, looking towards, you know, the era of socialist realism. And so, um, yeah. It'd be a good idea to go ahead and define socialist realism when you get that far too. Yeah. Um, oof why you know and how how things change i mean they saw their art changing society and playing a part in the revolution the revolution happens in 1917 they still feel that their art has a role to play in the new society which i think certainly allowed for some some artistic uh, freedom and creativity. I think there was there was plenty, but at the same time, politics and that connection that by its very nature, they helped bring about this new regime um, sort of began to control things, I guess more yeah. is how I would, I see it. Um, and that throughout the twenties, the artistic freedom gradually dissipates. I mean, even, I mean, almost right off the bat, you get certain artists eliminated or um, very soon after, you know, 1921, um, either dying or, or being repressed. Uh, other, other artists being able to do what they want, but it was an expectation that they would participate in the new Soviet state. Um, and, you know, I think a figure like Trotsky, whom I mentioned in the book, certainly advocated for, for some um, artistic freedom and envisioned art playing a, an important role in society and in the, in the new, in the new state. And that filmmakers writers, painters could participate in that, but gradually, um, gradually the artistic freedom dissipates, which is maybe could be, a, could have been predicted. Um, and then the, the formalism, as it was called, the formal ideas and the formalism became the catchphrase where 
formalism being the catchphrase for anything that had creativity in it gradually becomes a almost as dirty word um, in throughout the 1920s and there was less less opportunity for artists to participate in a in a creative way um, not doing what the the state wanted and one of the ways I see again why sports is important is that it was a it was almost this backdoor to creativity that um, it was a sports were being advocated for by the new government they wanted a, a, the Soviet populace to engage be healthy and and they wanted to transform society um, so sports becomes this this mode of of creativity for a number of artists especially i talk about the photographers who all of a sudden are you know these folks are picking up picking up cameras and creating these very beautiful very uh, arresting very formal uh images of athletics uh as one of the ways that they can be creative and one of the few ways that they can have that creativity. So through the 20s, you gradually see the freedoms dissipating, and then Stalin comes to power in the gradually in the 20s um, and starts. Um, you know, there. You know, it's really technically socialist realism emerges in the early 30s, but it's but it's already part of the discourse, I would say, indirectly in, in the late 20s, where they must depict a reality that doesn't exist. It's almost depicting, I guess it would be a depiction of a, a reality that the government wished, want, was hoping for, uh, or wants and that that and it was expected that artists would depict that um, that future reality rather than exploring the, the present um, and that that was going to be expected of all Soviet artists. And then gradually the the restrictions become more draconian and artists are are either killed or they conform. Uh, they conform or they're killed, and gradually, um, art is art is essentially squelched. Um, and you even see that in the works uh, works of certain artists that that come at it, come at sports in a real creative way. Alexander Dineka, who also sort of in, in certain ways envisioned himself as an athlete, um, has a great self portrait, but. Um, ultimately has to sort of toe the line in terms of state policy and sports and depicting depicting happy happy athletes in in Soviet society so and then you you see it with all the art or artists or they they either produce or they they just go silent or they're killed Mandelstam being one who you know before the revolution who wrote about poetry and but and then Eventually, he's he's sent to a send out to Siberia where he dies. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it occurred to me as a kind of summary that it's like we're moving, you know, say pre mid twenties from life creating art 
to yeah. after that to art creating life creating art right? <laughs> yeah. Start off with this big idea yeah and and then we uh that creates the life that we're envisioning and then we're doing art about that you know it's, part of that yeah and it's it's, like a, it's almost like a three-stage answer to the old art and life question yeah yeah i yeah, i could see that yeah it's such a you know i don't think I don't, you know, there is this old, you know, debate about the Buddy's Grois that, you know, that the seeds of socialist realism were were planted in Russian avant-garde art and that it was leading towards uh, socialist realism in Russian avant-garde. And I, I don't take such a, a sort of black and white view of it and feel, you know, Certainly, there was creativity. There was great creativity, and it's eventually squelched by by the powers that be. And uh, you know, these I don't think I don't think it had to end the way that it did. Uh, but may, perhaps, as I mentioned, this the wanting to be involved and be engaged in this revolution. Um, it's hard to hard to extract art from that process if you think that art has a role to play in society uh what do you do when there is somebody that says that uh, all right our new society is going to be this way and you have to uh you have to produce art that that supports it so um so it's, yeah, i find sports a, an interesting prism through which to at, at the very least to to uh view socialist realism yeah so uh so is that why then I'm just making sure I'm I'm kind of putting all this together. Uh, is that why photography then becomes kind of a safe outlet because nobody can accuse you of making stuff up because it's yeah. in the photograph, right? But at the same time, like the way you take the photograph or whatever allows you some artistic freedom. So it's is it it's kind of a it's kind of a safe outlet for your artistic uh, impulses. Yeah. It is to an extent, to an extent, but then even that, then, you know, then critics start critis, critiquing the angle of okay. photographs and the way, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. the content. Yeah. Huh. Yes. Yeah, so. Just maybe you do, maybe you don't. Uh, but do you have any particularly good examples of like what kind of photograph could get you in trouble? I mean, obviously, you could like take a picture of the wrong thing, you know. So, yeah. Uh, I'm trying the, to look. Like, what would it mean to get a photograph wrong in 1931? You know, I guess that'd be a good way of putting my question. A, a, a photograph of sporting, uh, you know. As a, yeah, I'm looking here. I want to see if I can find a quote quotation. Um, because there were, I mean, there were these, the, a lot of journals, fascinating journals that produced these, uh, produced these photo or included these photographs. Um, uh, and it was actually one of the more enjoyable parts of the research was this, was, you know, being, having the opportunity to just look at some of these these old journals and find these 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 photographs but um uh, this um there was a conservative critic leonid uh, um who was uh he became 
an official for uh, the Soviet photography organ. Um, and he wrote about um, this image. It's a, a very formal image of a, a, a tennis player. And it appeared in, in proletarian photo. So you would think, okay, it's fine. You know, uh, shows a guy playing tennis, but then it's, this is the, this is the critic. Our comrades from October, uh, wonderfully wield the technical side of photography, but that October was a group of photographers, uh, but questions of composition, texture, perspective, angle, disproportionate foreground and background, etc., have begun to play such a dominant role for them. As a result, we have a series of works from which one gets the inverse impression of that which was conceived. Smirnov's falling tennis uh, people skiing up a mountain rather than skiing down it in, in Gruntal's uh, Park KO and the tea kettle that dominates Langman's young commune, Dinamo, uh, his almost incomprehensible image radio gymnastics. All this testifies to drastic formalist deviation amid a lack of political intuition. <laughs> Off with his head. Off with his head. Yep. Yeah. Doing, you know, going way too far here, right? For the for the authorities, right? And he's oh. he's critiquing that. And you know, and these artists, these photographers thought, okay, this is a great way to uh, you know, I've I found a safe space, so right. to speak, <laughs> for my art. But no, not in the least. Well, that kind of puts you over a barrel when what you can envision in your head is off limits and what you can take a picture of in real life is off limits, too. That doesn't leave much left. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And then you're just and then you get to these so many photographs of political, you know, sports parades. Right. And I kind of wanted to get to that, actually. Yes. Uh, so maybe you could just talk about the you know, the, the kind of mass sports phenomenon, like does that get uh, depicted in art? But the other thing I wanted to ask you about too was you had that really interesting section in there where you were talking about how like in the Stalin era, sports related art starts to really focus on individual acts yeah. and kind of heroism, right? Which in the abstract sounds backwards. Yes, it does. Yes, exactly. It would be backwards. So, so on the one hand, maybe you could talk about mass sports events, but also, like, how is that not backwards in context of the time? What makes that make sense, given yeah. um, Stalin era? Yeah, it, it took me a while to really, almost, as I was writing this, wrap my head around that conundrum that, you know, wanted to argue that, you know, that it's, that Stalinism squelches the individual for the for the sake of the masses that's what one might assume would have happened but that's not the case at all that it was this mass movement that the soviet's early soviet culture promoted that they wanted everybody to be uh as many people to be healthy and active as possible that it was seen as a as a positive thing and that society needed to change um, in that way. And thus artists, avant-garde artists really began to delve into the mass 
the mass movement of sports, especially in cinema and the connections between the mass art of cinema and the mass, the masses, the mass activity of, of sports, be it spectators or, or participants. Um, Stalinism though, disregards that, I suppose you could say, promoted it in a little bit of a way, but also wanted to see elite athletes as examples of that new Stalinist state, that instead of mass, um, mass participation, it became and this, you know, it happens in a lot of a lot of places where instead of instead of it being about the masses, it's about the country glorifying itself. That Stalin wanted individual athletes uh, to, as a sort of a rep- metonymic representation of the ent- entire Soviet Stalin estate, that Stalinism was superior. Um, so it just less of a concern it's not as the, in the, and then then you have these parades which are in itself promoting sports but not really athletic at all they're just uh they're just folks marching in in a celebration of sports but not you know, the rigid, rigid formation and not the playful. It's, it's almost removing the play of sports from, from athletics. Uh, uh, and that's, you know, the, there are these journals, this, what is it? The, uh, well, what's the name of the journal? USSR, um, um, today, I think, or I forget the name of the title of the, the journal, but it just has, um, it promotes sports and says it is promoting the sports movement, but it's really focusing on that elite, elite performance. So the right? way it takes the play out and puts the competition back in. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, there is a bit of a, yeah, yeah. but... Um, you know, like Stakhanovism, you know, in the with yeah, the, yeah. the book, you know, the kind sure. of socialist competition, right? Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, there is a bit. Yeah, this the Stakhanovites in yeah, and almost un, unrealistic competition mm-hmm. in a sense, and um, yeah, so it does. I mean, even Dinyeka's photo uh, paintings show almost athletic excellence and you know it doesn't it's it that that mass participation just i think is the is the key where there could be some competition but it's not really about um you know it's more about getting the country involved rather than one person triumphing over another where the Stalinist does return, return to that just as, you know, we see that in Nazi, Nazi Germany as well, that sure, we're yeah. going to prove our superiority through, through sports. And again, um, 
there is nothing wrong with competition per se, but then if it's used in a way, certainly by, you know, by the Nazi, Nazi Germany in the, at the 1936 Olympics, but, uh, um, but also, um, Stalinist, Stalinist Russia or Soviet Union also has a, has a somewhat, it's not fascist certainly, but it has a, uh, uh, unsavory use of athletics um, to 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 prove its superiority. Hmm. That, is, it, that point struck me because you know at the beginning, get correct me if I get this wrong, but back at the beginning of our talk, you know it kind of sounded like yeah these two uh, you know excellence and competition. Yeah. During the early era that. Uh, that we're talking about here it seems like the competitive part of it drops out a bit and the excellence part waxes and then later on during the stalin era it kind of seems like it's the reverse at least to an extent yeah Yeah, and maybe maybe yeah i think that that's probably right there at some point there's a there's an equilibrium that is uh probably what is the healthiest yeah uh the healthiest, no, no, I guess no pun intended, but, uh, uh, um, yeah, that, uh, when you can have a striving for excellence, but also competition and, uh, and cherish both of them, uh, it's, it's, that is, um, sort of an ideal that they, you know, I think Europe, it's achieved in Europe and in, in Russia for, to an extent. I mean, maybe that's what Nabokov harkens back to from his own own youth and sort of continues it in an immigration where he, he grew up in this time. You know, he obviously grew up in a, in a very wealthy household where he could play tennis, he could play soccer uh, and engage in these sports. It wasn't, you know, I don't think he saw it particularly as, you know, the great, great excellence per se. It's not exactly it, but it's, and it's not just competition, but it's a combination of both and that sort of love of play and a striving for excellence in a, in a certain way in his own life. Uh, and that he finds, uh, finds the perfect balance and, uh, and continues that after into the thirties in immigration. Yeah. You know, I, uh, we're getting about to the end of our, our hour here, but as you were talking there, one more thing maybe occurs to me. I, I don't, I don't really follow the Olympics or anything like that myself, but yeah. when was the, um, so the Russian Olympics here, uh, what was that like 10 years ago or, uh, the Russian Olympics, uh, you, you are you talking about the Soviet one or, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. The more recent one, when uh, oh, in Sochi, in Sochi, yeah. yes, right, yeah. Right. What I was wondering is, you know, obviously there's um, uh, you're thinking about the the increase in the importance of like uh, of, of sports as symbolizing the health of your country as a kind of yeah. nationalist sort of overtone <laughs> under Stalin, right? And then cheating, yeah, and, yeah. You you followed exactly what I was my, my train of thought <laughs> here. So I guess I was I was wondering then do. Um, I don't know if this is something you you know looked into or not, so it's kind of a long shot. But I mean, does uh, I mean is there something like the Sochi Olympics? Like, is that become the subject of kind of nationalist inflected art 
as well, uh, you know, in more recent history or, or no? Ooh. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm totally putting you on the spot here. I don't know yeah. if the, it, it occurred to me to ask as you were talking about that Stalin era uh, issues there. Yeah, and that it becomes, and your question would be whether it is like sort does, of. Does, uh, like, does, does, uh, Say in, in context of the Sochi Olympics, mm-hmm. let's say would if there's any you know coverage of that in art, yeah, does yeah. that next kind of art that's produced in that era does that kind of resemble you know Stalin era? Stalin, art? I bet there is some. I don't. What what comes to mind? And this isn't exactly art that celebrates sports, but there was this opening ceremony that they had for the Sochi Olympics where it was going through the Russian alphabet and at the opening for the opening ceremony and with each letter taking a cultural item from Russia and, and celebrating it in through, through visuals. Yeah. Um, and they go th- at the at the at the beginning. They go through it. It's extremely propagandistic. Uh, you know, it t- it go it touches on Nabokov. It touch you know it uh, Tolstoy. But you know, a lot of Russian writers. There's the Sikorsky he- helicopters. There's a lot of different okay. cultural artifacts and. I used to show it to students in, we used to show it here at Bryn Mawr to first, first year Russian students. And then gradually it becomes, you know, dawned on me that this is so propagandistic. And, you know, nowadays I, I wouldn't dare show it. It's just, it reeks, it reeks of sort of Putinism. Um, you have to be presented carefully. <laughs> yes. Yeah. As an artifact of, yeah. of, of Putinism that yeah. he is, uh, you know, he is producing art, you know, artistic, uh, an artistic product that is very, very um, slanted and, and propagandistic hmm. and pro, pro-Russian. And it was right after, right after the Sochi Olympics that they invaded Crimea. Uh, right. So it's sort of out, of out of that Olympics comes not only the cheating scandals, but the 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 sort of geopolitical uh, maneuvering that has led us to today in certain certain respects, which is a bit a bit scary and taints certainly taints um, taints sports in a little way, and that's that's also part of the history is that sports has been tainted uh, in in certain ways by well, its association. In, yeah, you talked in the book about the problem of like rigged wrestling, you know, thrown wrestling matches and so on. So, yeah. 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 And then, you know, it's, that's one thing. Yeah. But then you're, then you're doping and, uh, you know, part of, you know, part of sports is, is going to be trying to cheat a little bit. Uh, that's just only natural. But then, you know, once, once the cheating becomes so, so egregious, then it renders the agon and the aret uh, um, irrelevant, yeah. um, and and it makes sports pointless if it's all you know. That's what I think of professional wrestling. If it's if it has you know 
I, I wouldn't waste my time with it. If it's all an act, then it's all, it's not, it's not, if it's not real competition, what's the point of it per se, other than a spectacle? Um, uh, yeah. And that's in the same, same, you could say for the doping scandals at Sochi that, uh, you know, after a while, you know, if these, if these guys are all doping, uh, uh, why, why take an interest in it? If it's, if it's going to be a bunch of whoever can cheat the most wins. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's a, a good place to knock off our talk, Tim. So thanks for taking an hour or so to talk to me about the book. I was really yeah. looking forward to this. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I enjoyed it.